CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Welcome to the show today. You're watching The Hash here on Coindesk TV. I'm Zach Seward. We have Sandli Hantagama and George Kaloudis. George, looking lovely. Your hair is amazing, sir. Thank you for being here with such (laughs) lovely hair. All right, we're going to get right into things. Yeah, oh yeah. He's down in Austin, folks. He is gearing up for the big consensus event. More on that later. First to the news. All right, PayPal Crypto, which rolled out its crypto service back in 2020, is finally rolling out the functionality for folks who buy crypto on the giant fintech platform to send those coins to external wallets or other exchanges. Interesting move here representing PayPal's further adventures in crypto land, something we've seen other fintechs pursue after rolling out highly custodial crypto services. Sonali, I'm going to toss this to you for your initial thoughts on this PayPal development. Thanks. Yeah, this is this is quite exciting. But the thing that stood out to me was this one quote where it says, we want people on our platform acquiring digital currencies to be able to then use them to do something. Yeah, that, that sounds <laughs> about right. I think it was big of PayPal to intro the buy, sell and hold when they first came into crypto. It was such a big deal and it, it moved markets and, you know, everyone's so excited. But this move is essential if you want to actually do anything with your crypto. So good move. And what took you so long is my question. I'm going I'm to send this to George because I think he might agree. Yeah, uh, maybe this tells you how bad I am at my job. But really, I thought this was already a thing. I mean, didn't PayPal do the whole crypto thing so long ago? How are we just now able to take what is our money and put it in our wallet wherever we want? It just it seems crazy to me. Like, were people going on PayPal and in between, you know, paying for lawnmowers or paying for whatever they were paying for. They were like putting it in Bitcoin for a little bit and then moving it over to cash so they can use on PayPal. Is that what people were doing? Or like, was anyone using PayPal to buy Bitcoin at all? What's the deal here? Does anyone know? I'll answer those questions for you right now. So the way it was rolled out with PayPal was through Paxos, which is the uh, regulated custodian here in New York. They have an exchange called ItBit. So a lot of the volume that you can see explorers and whatnot on ItBit is generated from PayPal stuff. And this is something that like Will Foxley has said for a long time, right? As crypto becomes more asset, less currency, this is a great, fine enough way for people to get exposure 
to the ups and downs of Bitcoin, right? They park it in their thing, they see the price go up, they sell, they just hang on to it. It's sort of more like an IOU than actually holding the Bitcoin itself. So this is sort of a continuation that adds more functionality as people get further down the adoption curve. I think there's another quote in there from uh, you know the crypto chief at PayPal saying, hey, this is pushing our everyday consumers down the crypto adoption curve. I think that's super interesting. It's been, I think, a little bit under two years since they first rolled out this service. So for them to add this functionality now, it's definitely a bit like, okay, great. Thanks for doing that. You've been teasing this since uh, you know spring of 2021. Great that it's finally over the finish line. But I think you know fintechs move more slowly than crypto stuff. So to see this in under two years, I think is a positive development. And hopefully it does empower people to put these assets on chain. I don't know, buy an NFT, do something a bit more creative than buying the IOU and PayPal and watching number go up or down, whatever the case may be. But Sandli, toss to you. Yeah, I agree. I think that they said in the article, there's a quote, this is like a long game for them. They're looking at crypto as a long-term investment, as a long-term kind of play. So, you know, Zach, maybe you're right. Like taking things slow makes more sense so that they can get it right and make sure that they're covered and what they're introducing makes sense for for all the users. And they did say that, you know, our customers are literally asking for this. So great to see this happening. And yeah, George. To that, all public companies are infinite lived things, right? So they should have a long-term view on things. So I'm glad they had to come out as a public company and say, hey, we're a public company and we're doing the thing that public companies do, which is thinking long-term. So PayPal, good for you. I'm proud of you for letting us take ownership of our crypto assets. I say R like I'm a, I'm a customer. I am not. Well said. I mean, it is interesting, right? There's these centralized intermediaries that become the gateway, the on-ramps to the crypto economy. And as more of these on-ramps proliferate, whether it's through Robinhood or PayPal or Square, it's going to be interesting to see if any of those on-chain metrics, people getting the coins out of the exchanges and into self-custody where they hold those assets themselves. It's going to be interesting to see if that ultimately progresses towards something. But it sure feels like every fintech and every exchange is sort of converging in the middle of being the super app of all assets among the internet savvy. So interesting to watch that unfold, but we will change gears. All right, Sandali, I think you have the next story. Yes, so it's the bill we've been waiting for, or not, depends on who you ask, I guess. But we finally have a sweeping bipartisan crypto bill introduced in the United States. Uh, Republican Senator Cynthia Lummis and Democrat Senator Kristen Gillibrand introduced the bill on Tuesday. While most crypto bills introduced so far try to tackle things piecewise, this one is wide-ranging, covering everything from stablecoins to taxes to which agencies will hold supervision powers. A key aspect of the bill is how it actually defines crypto. It makes it quite clear that a digital asset would be considered a security if holders can enjoy the same benefits as corporate shareholders do, like earn dividends and have liquidation rights. So under the bill, a lot of crypto could fall under the jurisdiction of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission or the CFTC and not the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, which we've been seeing a lot of, you know, regulatory action coming from. So their bill also proposes making transactions less than $200 tax-free, which could mean freeing up crypto to act more like a currency. So... The bill has been maybe like months in the making, and although it's been behind a few bills already introduced, as the article points out, Lummis is on the Senate Banking Committee that oversees the SEC, 
And Gillibrand is on the Agriculture Committee that watches the CFTC, so they might actually be well-placed to move this forward. Zach, I'm going to throw this to you first on your thoughts. There's a lot to unpack here, and I think it has yeah. a bit of everything for everyone, right? And I think the notable thing here is this is a bipartisan team. This is Lummis and Gillibrand, and they're saying, okay, let's get the ball rolling on this stuff. I think the article uh, written by Disney Hamilton very capably sort of lays out that, hey, this is the beginning of what's likely to be a long-running process. This is not going to be law overnight, but it does suggest that people in the offices of very prominent lawmakers in, in D.C. are thinking through this stuff pretty sophisticatedly. There's a lot of nuance in this stuff. Some good, some bad, depending on where you fall on sort of the crypto self-sovereign finance spectrum. But there's a lot of material in this, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see what ultimately garners support and what ultimately gets excised from the record. So this is the early innings of what's likely to be another long year, maybe two, of sort of regulatory sausage making and the halls of power. And I'm really curious to see if anything material emerges from these proposals, right? We've seen similar proposals before. Nothing really seems to establish itself with a degree of clarity that industry advocates are pushing for. So if this is the one that gets it over the finish line, more power to them. If not, we'll probably see another effort similarly to shape how crypto should be regulated going forward and by whom. So that's the interesting stuff to me, but I'm going to throw it straight to George. So two things I love here and one thing I like. First thing I love, our, our woman powerhouse, Lummis like Hummus, is awesome. She's crushing it. I love the title of this thing, right? Responsible Financial Innovation Act, right? Perfect, right? It sounds nice even for people who don't care about crypto. It's great. The thing I like, and this is something I've co-opted from the people I've talked to on Twitter and various places here in Austin, uh, this puts regulation of digital assets spot markets, in, including exchanges, into the hands of the CFTC, like Sandley said, right? Maybe it won't pass this year, but it's a decent starting point and it will get commented on extensively by many, many people. And the positive part of the news to me is that it's not like the infrastructure bill, which started so far afield and had to just be clawed back point by point by point just by, you know, by our friendly lobbyists on the Hill and on Twitter. I think that's a positive thing. I don't know, Sandali, what do you think? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is probably the closest thing we've seen come out of the US that resembles, at least in principle, what the EU is trying to do with its markets and crypto assets legislation. So this can help unify and kind of simplify regulation at the federal level. Whether it gets there is a whole different question. But that also means it's crucial that they get this right. We saw how in the EU parliament, they almost went ahead with a proposal to effectively ban Bitcoin in the block earlier this year. So even if this promises to be a friendly bill, lobby groups should be kind of ready for anything, I think. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. The article said that we might not see anything significant till next year, but you know there is that time. Get ready, look through the details and be ready when the time comes. Zach. Hey, speaking of which, Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Cynthia Lummis will be joining Coindesk TV on First Mover, 9 a.m., followed by a town hall at the consensus event in Austin, Texas, this Friday. Check it out, Friday, 9 a.m. on First Mover, and then later in the day, in person, for a lawmaker town hall at consensus. Definitely one of the more high-profile panels at that event. Definitely check it out. All right, let's change gears. George, you have our last story of the day. What is it? Yeah, let's talk about a new unpublished academic paper that somehow made its way into three separate articles on Coindesk.com, right? 
So the paper is titled Cooperation Among an Anonymous Group Protected Bitcoin During Failures of Decentralization, which on the surface does seem pretty scary, doesn't it, right? The New York Times published 4,000 words about this under the title, How Trustless is Bitcoin Really? And here's what the academic paper did and how they did it, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defund this, right? We know that Bitcoin is pseudo-anonymous. It's a transparent ledger, all that good stuff. And because of that, people can go trawling around the Bitcoin blockchain to figure out things about the actors, the people who are doing stuff, right? These researchers applied a bunch of different techniques in tandem to find a more, more new information about the actors in Bitcoin. And one of the main techniques they used was described by Sergio Lerner in 2013 using what is called extranons. Basically, there's arbitrary data that gets put into a field by miners, which everyone was in the early days. And that can be used to profile users. And that's pretty cool. And the paper covered a period of time between Bitcoin's inception and then dollar parity, which was about two years. But the big aha gotcha that people are trying to get on here with Bitcoin is these two points. And they're not good points. The first one, Bitcoin is not as private as we thought. Okay, we never thought that. And the second thing, Bitcoin wouldn't have succeeded, weren't it, for the altruistic people in the early days propping up the blockchain, which we already know, right? This paper might be used as a means for FUD, for uncertainty doubt, but in reality, it just shouldn't be. It's nothing more than an interesting exercise in looking at the dynamics of early Bitcoin. And like I've said many times in Slack and in Twitter DMs, 2010 Bitcoin, we don't talk to 2010 Bitcoin anymore, right? It's 2022. So anyway, that's my defudding. Do either of you want to jump in and get in there? Zach, go for it. I want to jump in. I think that your last point is the most important point, the temporal element here the snapshot in time element here. And I think what is happening in this New York Times piece specifically, maybe less so among the authors of this study, the extrapolation from then to now is a bit negligent. And I think some of those, that nuance uh, around the state of this nothing burger network that wasn't guaranteed to have success before this asset was even worth anything, extrapolating that moment to this now moment in which Bitcoin is a major, major part of the cryptocurrency economy, that extrapolation to me feels the iffiest when we look at this stuff. There's some cool findings here going to a very granular level, but I think you're right. I think it's being misinterpreted as though it's a comment on what has become a much bigger thing, right? So looking at this little snapshot in time saying, oh, it wasn't as decentralized as we thought, and then applying that to the state of the current network feels a little bit argued in bad faith by some of the authors here. But again, it's worth checking out. If you can get your hands on some of the details in this report, uh, it's worth exploring. Sandali, I'll toss it to you. Yeah, the research is pretty interesting, right? What they did and the address linking work that they did. It's like nerd paradise. <laughs> and you can really go down a rabbit hole and just imagine what you can do with large data sets you know, through this. And it's such an interesting story. It's the story of Bitcoin. So like a lot to unpack here that has nothing to do with kind of as you said, what Bitcoin is today. It's what it was at the beginning. And I'm not entirely sure what, what the big surprise was about a small number of people and the centralization at the beginning. Like you said, George, I mean, that's how you picture the start of anything, right? Huge companies start out of basements. There had to be a basement moment for, for Bitcoin as well. And it was the first of its kind. It wasn't going to be instantly decentralized and picked up everywhere and mined everywhere. As you said, I think what's more interesting to me was that it had to, you know, rely on trust at some point and whether, and this is an interesting question that the Coindesk article points out, 
can participants be relied on to corporate if a cryptocurrency stops appreciating? I think that's a more interesting question in this context, the present context we're at, where so many people are stakeholders of Bitcoin. So Zach, I don't know if you have any, any more thoughts. Looking at sort of like early, you know, primordial soup of Bitcoin through an academic lens, whatever conclusions are being made, whether those conclusions are sort of made in good faith or not, just being able to like look at some of this data and apply this level of research to a very early nascent network before, again, that network effect kicked in and more and more people got on board. It is interesting to consider this in the historical context as something that will be studied by future generations. But George, you're the man yeah. on this one. What do you got? Yeah, I had the pleasure of seeing the draft of this paper in early May. So uh, I've had it for a while. I've seen it a bunch. And there are two things. I'm going to put my maxi hat on. I'm going to protect my, my favorite asset. The first thing is when they talk about economic actors and trying to you know, hurt the Bitcoin blockchain and make money, that wasn't possible for the time period that is covered in this paper. It was from literally zero dollars to dollar parity. And like at the best, you could have made a million dollars, which I guess great, but also not that crazy. And the other thing I want to say is that, yes, Satoshi did mine the Genesis block. So while it was quote unquote pre-mined, that is an unmovable coin base. And then the next block was mined, I don't know, six days later because Satoshi, the group of Satoshi was like, hey, everyone, come mine this thing. So it wasn't decentralized at first, but it was completely open and people could have started mining if they really wanted to, if they believed in it. So anyway, you had to trust somebody, I guess, trust the code. All right, we'll leave it there. <laughs> if you guys want to geek out on the past and future of crypto and money more broadly, we have something for you at the consensus event. It's called the Money Reimagined Summit. We got a lot of good topics. They include how crypto derivatives are shaking up Wall Street, who should be allowed to issue digital dollars. And yeah, there's gonna be a lot of great stuff. So if you can't make it in person down to Texas this week, no worries, we got you covered. We have a virtual pass to consensus. You can go get that now. Head over to coindesk.com slash consensus2022. Look for the virtual pass to the consensus live stream sponsored by BitGit. That is your ticket to tune in if you can't make the flight down to Austin. All right, that's it. I'm making a flight down to Austin tomorrow. Should be fun. George, hope to see you soon. Sandali, I hope to see you soon somewhere as well. And viewer, listener, I hope to see you as well. Should be fun. All right, that's pretty much it for the show today. You're watching The Hash. We'll be back later this week with some special editions with a live studio audience. Maybe not studio, but with a live audience at least. That'll be fun. All right, stick with us. Till then, have a great day. And that's it. Thanks for being here. Talk to you soon. And bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 